Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Jules Tavernier and the LM Pomo at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. My first guest is Elizabeth Kornhauser, who, along with Shannon Vittoria, curated the show. The exhibition examines the cultural interchange within Tavernier's Dance in a Subterranean Roundhouse at Clear Lake, California from 1878, and the LM Pomo portrayed within it. The exhibition also complicates Tavernier's picture and oeuvre by examining his other representations of indigenous life, as well as his engagement with the international banking and mining interests that developed the Clear Lake region in the picture, much of which had been made toxic by borax and mercury extraction. The exhibition is on view in New York through November 28th, before traveling to the De Young Museum in San Francisco. It's accompanied by an issue of the Met Bulletin that includes contributions from L.M. Pomo cultural leader and regalia maker Robert Joseph Geary. The bulletin is not available via the web, but if you go to the show page at manpodcast.com, we'll tell you how to purchase it from the Met. On the second segment, Aaron M. Hyman's new book, Rubens in Repeat, The Logic of the Copy in Colonial Latin America. But first, Betsy Kornhauser, after the break. The Getty Center is having something of a photography moment. Four exhibitions are now open and run through October 10th. Mario Giacomelli, Figure Ground, which features the humanistic work of one of the foremost Italian photographers of the 20th century. The Expanded Landscape, a selection of large-scale, graphically abstract contemporary works. Photoflux, Unshuttering L.A., which brings together inspiring photographs by L.A.-based artists of color. And In Focus Protest, an exhibition of images made during periods of social struggle in the U.S. Learn more and make free advance reservations at getty.edu. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, presents a conversation with Nadia Botello on September 23rd at 7 p.m. Central. The artist, composer, and engineer will speak with Rachel Adams, Bemis Chief Curator and Director of Programs, about her work and the making of other channels, a live performance and conversation on the Missouri River on October 2nd, 2021. Other Channels explores the history of the Missouri River as it flows in and around Omaha, This experimental music performance asks, what happens when we pay attention and listen to a river? What develops in the moment when we juxtapose the natural against the engineered? Botello used early to present-day maps and United States geological survey data sets to create this composition to be performed aboard a boat traveling alongside the sounds of the surrounding river. In addition to the performance by a strings ensemble of the Omaha Symphony, various local experts will speak about the river, revealing its history, possible future, and the impact it has had on Omaha and Council Bluffs, Iowa. Free admission. RSVP is required at bemiscenter.org slash events to receive Zoom information. And we're back. Betsy Kornhauser, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Great to be here, Tyler. Let's start with Jules Tavernier himself, who you argue had a brief but major career mostly in the American West. In that way, in that his career was both brief and primarily in the West, one might think of him as a kind of Californian Carl or Charles Ferdinand Weimar. So who was Tavernier and how might we place him within America's art history? Well, he's a kind of unique figure in that he starts his career in Paris, very formal training, academic training with the noted academic history painter Felix Joseph Barrius in his studio from 1861 to 64. And that involved, you know, life 
drawing classes and very formal academic work. But then by the latter 1860s, he is attracted to the Barbizon colonies and paints, you know, in Fontainebleau and various colonies. And then his life was always, it was a very active and disrupted life. Then the Franco-Prussian <laughs> War hits in you know, 1870, just as his career might have blossomed. Up until that point, an interesting aspect, I think, of his early life was that he exhibited at the Paris Salon from 1865 to 70. And during that time, he was exposed to works by Frederick Church's Niagara, Albert Bierstadt's Rocky Mountain Landers Peak. Carlton Watkins' Yosemite series. So he was seeing these works, probably hearing a bit about the international feeling that the Hudson River School, which hasn't even been defined as that at that point, was beginning to become a little passe for international audiences. And Watkins was more cutting edge American artist in the minds of the critics at that time. But he certainly saw many paintings of the American West and of Native Americans by both European and American artists at the Salon shows. So that was an interesting kind of jumping off point for him. And then stylistically, he moves away from, you know, the academic French tradition toward Barbizon painting. And then the Franco-Prussian War, which he actually served in briefly, forced him to leave. And he went to London, spends a little time there, he works as both an illustrator and a painter and a you know, watercolorist and pastelist, but is attracted to the United States by 1871. And he befriends this very talented engraver, Alan Meesum, a British engraver who he travels to New York with and arrives in 1871. So it's a really interesting timeline to consider because he arrives as the Hudson River School is, is starting to fall into disfavor to some extent. And he certainly immerses him in the New York art world, mainly as an illustrator, though, and does a lot of work for various publications, for William Cullen Bryant's Picturesque America, where he does standard iconic views of Niagara Falls, for example, of life in New York City. But then Harper's recognizes his talent and hires him to take this journey across the West. And they pair him up with a fellow French artist, Paul Frenzny, and send them off on a really rigorous <laughs> adventure, almost two-year adventure across the American West. And they would provide over a hundred images of you know, seeking out, certainly Taverny sought direct encounters with Native Americans. And I, you know, I have to sort of put myself in his head that he wasn't carrying the kind of manifest destiny belief system that many of our American landscape painters of the time had, such as, you know, Albert Bierstadt, for example. He was coming from a different set of experiences and certainly had the French romantic concepts of Native American life, but he really manages to pull off some very important direct encounters with Native Americans and with very important ceremonies like the Sundance ceremony. He meets Red Cloud, but he also provides images that are a little bit sensationalized as well. 
And one of the things we did with our show is to directly work with Native American consultants who were able to sort of open our eyes to the agendas that were in place at the time, probably more so than I might have interpreted them in that way. So the way we, you know, approached his his illustrations or Harper's was to vet them through these expert Native American consultants. So to get to your actual question, he arrives after this amazing tour a very popular series of images that appear in Harper's, as I said, over 100. He arrives in San Francisco, which was his destination, and is immediately embraced by the artistic community there. And I have to admit, Tyler, that at our collection at the Met is very, you know, East Coast centric. <laughs> and yeah, just to let you off the hook a little bit, so is the De Young's in San Francisco. <laughs> yes, that's also true. <laughs> Also true. It's probably true of most American art collections. So he arrives there and is immediately embraced by not only the artistic community, which, as I learned in my research and and certainly studying the fine scholarship done by previous scholars, such as, you know, Joseph Bio and Claudine Chalmers, that San Francisco was a lively artist colony. And so he's embraced there, and there's a a thriving French emigrate community. So here he is primed, having had direct experiences. He even, on his journey across the West, he collected a lot of Native American attire, regalia, clothing, beadwork. And it's interesting to note how his appearance transforms. He often puts himself, a self-portrait of himself, in many of his works. And so you can watch him as he begins wearing a formal European travel attire in an early watercolor. And then by the time he gets to Wyoming and Nebraska, he has a full frontiersman leather suit (laughs) and And that's what he wears in San Francisco. And it's very exotic and yeah. This is when the transcontinental is just been completed in the early 1870s. Yes, uh, tra- Transcontinental exactly. completed in 69. Passenger traffic really begins to move in 71. So mm-hmm. San Francisco was full of, of, of people, especially artists coming from the East. One, one more quick thing before we move on. This is the second straight, if you will, straight show the Mets American Wing has done a European artist looking at indigenous cultures in the American West. The Bodmer show taken mostly or entirely from the collection of the Jocelyn in mm-hmm. Omaha recently closed at the Met. So at the heart of this exhibition, uh, at the heart of its instigation, really, is a large, long-lost picture that you acquired five years ago. What is that picture, and how the heck did you find it? Well, I had been really, had set my mind on expanding the Met's collection. We we have the iconic collection of Hudson River School paintings, every, you know, people are very familiar with. But like many American collections that I discussed, we did not have works by Western painters, and we did not have paintings that dealt directly with Native American subjects. And when I say directly, we have, you know, Albert Bierstadt's Rocky Mountain Landers Peak, but Bierstadt uses Native Americans as a kind of scenic, you know, they're seemingly passing through a very beautiful Edenic landscape ripe for white settlement. So I really, you know, having spent a lot of my career working on Hudson River School artists, really wanted to expand the storyline that we were telling 
in the Met's collection. So the story of the acquisition of this, it was Jules Tavernier's masterpiece called Dance in an Under in a Subterranean Roundhouse at Clear Lake, California, completed in 1878. He spent two years on it. And it was a major commission from the leading banker in San Francisco, Tuberquio Parrot, who was running a toxic mercury mine at Clear Lake on the lands of the Elam Pomo. Right, right after are, a toxic borax, borax mine had been run on the same site. <laughs> so this was a long history. Yeah. Oh, and he acquired it and ran it very successfully. And he had connections to the Rothschild family in Paris and enticed uh, Baron Edmund Rothschild to come to San Francisco, where they had had a business office since during the gold rush. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, even, even before the Comstock load, they were mm-hmm. there, yeah. And so one of the highlights of, you know, of course, Baron Rothschild wanted to see the mine at Clear Lake. And while they were there, they were able to experience through an invitation from the Elam Pomo chief at the time to experience the dance ceremony called the People's Dance that would later be portrayed in Tavernier's painting. The acquisition of the work, from my perspective, you know, I didn't know who Jules Tavernier was. I learned about the painting, interestingly, from my colleague, Keith Christensen, head of the European Paintings Department of the Met, who's recently retired and has the wonderful Medici show up right now, but he grew up on the West Coast and he was at Wildenstein Gallery one day. And Joseph Bio, who was running Wildenstein at that time, showed him this painting. Wow. And he he called me up. He said, Betsy, you have to. Wow. I mean, I think he understood that this was an exceptional and rare subject and beautifully painted. And so that's how I acquired it. I, I, you know, Wildenstein was not a gallery that I hung out in on a regular basis. And so (laughs) I really have to thank Keith (laughs) for bringing it to my attention. And it was very clear from the start that this painting was what I was looking for in so many different ways. It was a French artist in the American West painting very directly and kind of respectfully a very important ceremony, ceremonial dance. And What's most fascinating about it is that it's in an underground roundhouse. And Tavernier, unlike I think many of our Hudson River School painters, he had had extraordinary formal artistic training in Paris. And his ability to create the light effects, the clarity, the detail that honored the the Elan Pomo in this painting is just extraordinary. And you have to see it in person to fully appreciate it. And he was aware, certainly, that it was going into one of the great private art collections in Europe. Edmund de Rothschild was a, a renowned art collector. So that suddenly transformed our Hudson River collection by hanging it. I hung it next to Albert Bierstadt's Rocky Mountain Landers Peak. It began to attract a lot of attention and discussion. And then one year later, the Met was gifted the extraordinary Charles and Valerie Diker collection of Native American arts. And what was interesting to me, I mean, that resulted in a fairly permanent gallery on the first floor that highlights their collection. And it's a kind of model that you see in a lot of museums like the the MFA in Boston, other museums where you have Native American arts on one floor, then you have your traditional Euro-American arts on another floor. 
And so I had this concept of like, wouldn't it be interesting to experiment and take the Tavernier painting and do a really deep dive study into the Elon Pomo, their artistic traditions, how did, you know, how well did Tavernier capture that and put it all together, Pomo baskets, Pomo regalia, Tavernier's major works, you know, of Native Americans and with highlighting this major painting. And so that was the, the inspiration for the exhibition. And we were treading in new territory that happily led us toward a, a program of consulting Elon Pomo scholars really from day one and not the usual way of doing it. It was like they got involved in every aspect of the show, what should be on the checklist. And there were things that I should mention that Shannon Vittoria, my wonderful colleague, is the co-curator of the show. And we developed a, a preliminary checklist. And some of our, our Pomo consultants felt that several of the works were disrespectful, should probably never be shown. I mean, we learned a tremendous amount from them. And then as the show, the research and the planning went on, we we decided we had to really privilege their voices in a major, major way. So we invited them to write alternate labels, large panels, and our scholarly publication begins with an essay by the current cultural leader of the Limpomo, Robert Geary, who writes very personally about the Tavernier painting. Yeah. It's hard to overstate how rare it is for a European-American artist in 1860s or 1870s California to treat Native people with anything resembling dignity. The way in which this painting stands out as an exception is extreme and acute. So before we, we get into some of the histories we've been talking about and, and how they're present in the show, I mentioned a moment ago that Tavernier's picture was, was long lost, or at least long unknown to the field yeah. and not seen by hardly anybody. So that effectively prevented art histories from being constructed around it. And to ossify, as art histories have ossified around so, so many artworks about the American West, especially. So as you began to put this project together, did getting to start from near scratch help? Was that a plus? In many ways. I mean, I have to, you know, note that, as I said, Claudine Chalmers with Scott Shields and Alfred Harrison did a wonderful exhibition of Jules Tavernier uh, that went to the Crocker. Uh, in Sacramento. And, but the, this particular, our great painting hadn't been discovered yet. And they did a, a wonderful job. And I really relied on their scholarship to pull his life story together. But without this great painting as the centerpiece, I felt like we needed to approach Tavernier in a different way based on this painting. And, you know, what we discovered is that one of the insidious things that Tavernier did, it, which I do think, again, sets him apart, is we know that from the San Francisco newspapers covered the entire two-year program of him executing this work. They were fascinated by the commission. He was paid $3,000 for it. And he received the commission. I don't know exactly what Parrott said to him, but he made many, many trips to Clear Lake. We know that. And the San Francisco newspapers commented on the fact that he took dozens of life studies of the Elam Pomo for veracity. 
sake. So we know he did that. We know he he had to experience at least one ceremony of the people's dance. He did all these things. And we also know that one of Edmund Rothschild's colleagues, Count de Turin, who was traveling along with him, he kept this extraordinary journal that documented the trip north to the mines and just pages of description of the ceremony. And the journal, it's it provides very accurate descriptions and details of the music, the dance, the regalia, the architecture, which provides evidence that Tavernier's depiction is for the most part accurate. But it's also laced with a lot of racist terminology. For example, Turin, like the writers for the San Francisco newspapers, described all of the at least 30, you know, tribes of Pomo as diggers. diggers. As was as was, was common in California going back to the 1840s. Yeah. The California and newspapers, just, as historians have noted, were notoriously pro what we would now identify as genocide. Yes. And, the, and their writings about the painting were loaded with racist terminology. And then he described the dance as a war dance, which it absolutely was not. And Robert Geary, you know, provides a beautiful essay that describes the meaning of the dance in our bulletin and, the, you know, in his video that you can see online or in the exhibition. But what is most fascinating to me and which just knocked my socks off when I was first studying the painting is that within the hundred intricate circle of figures, mainly Pomo of all ages, he included Tuberquio Parrot, and these are accurate portrayals of them, Edmund de Rothschild, several of his traveling companions, and Count Turin, who's holding a pen. And in one scene, the Elon Pomo are kind of glaring at them. Like there was obviously tension that these white intruders were present for this very important sort of life-sustaining ceremony. And the fact that that Tavernier chose to do that, I just think it, you know, it's like adds another layer of what he he may have understood at the time of the horrific history of the Pomo, you know, white settlement for you know decades and decades of horrific killing, of, you know, literally enslaving and killing and of the Pomo people. It was one of the worst histories of a Native American experience with white settlement. The California genocide was most acute in Northwest California, which is where Clear Lake is kind of at the bottom of. Right, exactly. They're in the South, yeah, Eastern part of Clear Lake. So that was what, you know, that, the story that the painting tells and all of the historic material around it, then adding Robert's voice, who he's the only living speaker of the Elam Pomo language. He's been conducting the very same roundhouse people's dance in a roundhouse right near his house. He lives where, you know, his ancestors have always lived right there where Tavernier painted the painting. And he still conducts the ceremony. And we will be inviting Robert and his musicians and dancers to come to the Met at the end of September for a public opening event where he will do a segment of the dance. But to have his voice Talking about what the painting means to him was a new experience for me as a a curator who's been doing this for 
a very long time. It's interesting you mention that the Europeans misunderstood, he says generously, what they were seeing as a war dance. There is, by this point, a 30-year history of European Americans misunderstanding, often willfully, Native Californian dances as or, or events or gatherings of any kind as, as war dances. The historian Benjamin Madley, in his book, An American Genocide, identifies John C. Fremont's possibly willful misunderstanding of a Wintu gathering just east of modern-day Redding in extreme northern central California as instigating the first American massacre of Native Californians, a massacre of up to a thousand people, a massacre that instigated the American portion of the California genocide. So I'm interested that the commissioner or commissioners of the painting were interested in a scene of the Pomo people and not what might reasonably be expected of extractive industry owners in California at this period, which would be, say, a traditional, beautiful industry scrubbing landscape of the place. (laughs) So why do you think they wanted something other than that? You know, Powered had already acquired several paintings from Tavernier, and he was a patron of California artists. So his father was a Carlton Watkins collector. Yeah, exactly. He was on the, that list of yeah subscribers. So that is interesting in itself. I mean, I think Parrot knew Tavernier well. He already owned mainly landscapes, but you know some direct encounters between settlers and Native Americans in one of his landscapes. But I, I think I don't know. Maybe it's possible that Parrot and Rothschild and Turin recognized the special nature of their being invited into the ceremony. And also, I also think that Tavernier was so well suited for being able to do almost like, I don't like to to use the word encyclopedia of all the, you know, the attire, the musical instruments, the regalia. But if you stand in front of the painting, he was able to beautifully document not only the dance, he documented the architecture in a, in a really compelling way and his ability to show the three light sources to provide just enough light for the viewer to enter the painting and feel like you're part of it, part of the scene. And then you zero in on, I mean, one of the interesting things that Tavernier did that was artistic license that Robert pointed out is that on the left and right sides of the large painting, on the left, Tavernier carefully depicts a large burden basket, Poma basket, and on the right, a large tray basket. And they would not have been in the roundhouse. They would have been above ground during the food service part of the ceremony. But Tavernier wanted to honor the great importance of the basket in the culture, the lives, the, you know, artistry of the Pomo people. And the roundhouse itself is described by the Pomo as a basket form that Mm -hmm. sustains life, just as the large baskets sustain your life by food preparation or, you know, whatever. It's possible that he was playing to the French fascination with Native American life and culture and wanting, you know, this extraordinary level of detail and the fact that it was a a very 
special subject that could probably not have been, you know, all the, the sort of stars aligned for Taverny to do this. It probably would never happen again. And it didn't, to my knowledge, ever happen again. You mentioned the basket. I should pause to note that while there's lots of Pomo material in the show, including baskets, Betsy and I aren't going to talk about them because her co-curator, Shannon Vittoria, and I will later this fall. This was not Tavernier's only picture of Western Native people gathering. Tell us about Tavernier's gathering of the clans, Lakota encampment, which is now at the Oakland Museum in Oakland, California. That picture preceded the Pomo picture by a couple of years. Are there relationships between the two works? The painting resulted from another extraordinary occasion where Tavernier traveled with a military escort to Red Cloud's camp to witness the gathering of the clans for the at least week-long Sundance ceremony. And this was, you know, while he was working for Harper's in 1874, and he produced one engraving for Harper's, a kind of sensationalized view of a ceremony that takes place on the last day that's a kind of showing young members of the Lakota tribe enduring a kind of torturous ceremony where they stick through their skin either a wood or bone piece and then pull against it to test their endurance. And I feel like that work was, he was playing to Harper's because even, of the subject Even though it's a 60, oh, the, the, the Harper's work, not the 69-inch work. Harper's work. So the eight, so this 1874 experience, during that time, he actually met Red Cloud. He had, he had an amazing experience. Again, he had to get a special invitation to witness the, the Sundance ceremony. And when we, you know, put these on the checklist, we went further beyond the Elon Pomo to seek out a Lakota expert. In the end, we ended up having two <laughs> Lakota experts. Uh, Arthur Amiote, who's a renowned scholar. He's an Ogala Lakota member of that tribe, but he's a renowned educator, artist, writer, scholar, became our advisor. And this was, a, again, an interesting experience. The painting you're talking about was painted several years later after he's in San Francisco. And in fact, he com- he never completely finished it, but it was acquired just before he began the commission on the roundhouse painting. So you're right. Your instincts are right. They're very tied together. But what we learned was that the Sundance ceremony is a very sacred ceremony, not really for public view, not for, you know, white settlers or anyone else. And in today's world, for us to be able to show these two works, the only way we felt comfortable doing it and the only way our consultants felt comfortable for us to do it was to have them write about it. And that's when you begin to learn what you don't know. I mean, just as our show was, you know, before it launched, we hired for the first time a curator of Native American art, Patricia Norby, who's wonderful. And she's now in the American wing. And she also walked us through why we had to be extremely careful about what we said about this painting, how we presented it to our public. And we were able to add to Arthur's writings about it, the grandniece of Red Cloud, who also wrote about the painting and about Red Cloud himself. So 
again, these were all learning experiences where you confront like, should I show this? Do I have the right to show this? I mean, there, we, we asked that question many times in the process of the show, but to get back to the grand scale gathering of the clans, again, I think Tavernier did an amazing job. As Arthur writes about the ceremony, it was a joyous coming together, you know, solemn, but, you know, one it was occasion where multiple tribes came together and it was a week long ceremony of, you know, various different ceremonies that would take place over the course of that time. And it was a very much a renewal of tradition, passing on of tradition from one generation to the next, and very important for the life and for the resilience of the Sioux. And the, the, it was really the Lakota, Cheyenne, and Arapaho who came together. You know, again, I assess the painting as an art historian. It's, I mean, he did an amazing job of showing the sheer number of figures gathering. In the background, you have the sunlit Crow Butte, which was a wonderful landscape feature for Native Americans. He then highlights the, the sort of teaching that was going on during this time and includes what I believe and other scholars believe to be Red Cloud himself seated in front of his tent. And so it's a beautiful painting. And what's fascinating about it, he never finished it. And I, I should say that Tavernier was always seen in San Francisco as the most bohemian of bohemians he was described as because he he just lived a bohemian lifestyle he didn't pay his bills he socialized a great deal his his liver will eventually tap he out. loved champagne which he includes in several <laughs> of his paintings bottles so he didn't finish it but that if you see the painting in person again our painting conservators at the Met were just reveling at the kind of what they described as modernist technique of capturing the movement of the figures. And I mean, it's it's just beautifully painted. Like Albert Bierstadt, Tavernier was a European painter in America and European trained. Bierstadt was notoriously a literalist and resistant to metaphor as Tavernier typically was. If there's an exception within the Tavernier Uvra, it's gathering of the clans. The storm clouds in the upper right read east of the picture could be read as portentous. So kind of jumping off from that, you know, for me, Tavernier's pictures of the West can be problematic and in ways that go far, far beyond the ways in which pictures of the far West by like Albert Bierstadt are problematic. So let's talk a little bit about a dramatic, sensational 1876 picture at the Gilcrease in Tulsa called A Disputed Passage in the Days of 46. It shows unspecified Native people at the opening of a steep canyon, lying in ambush as wagons come down a road. Those people, we are to understand from Tavernier's total construction of the composition, are scheming, plotting, dangerous, and lying in wait. Historians such as Brendan Lindsay, the great historian of the California genocide, one of the great historians of the California genocide, tell us that these types of situations pretty much did not happen in, in the overland journey, that events such yeah. as this were fictions of the white imagination that were extended through kinship networks and that built such fear among the whites that these false fears contributed 
to the massacres that took place across the plains, intermountain, west and far west in the 1850s and afterward. How have you come to think of a a disputed passage? I wasn't able to see the painting because of COVID until it arrived at the Met. And one of the details that I had never observed in the illustrations of it is that the Native American figure at right, who's hanging over a fallen, you know, giant redwood tree, is actually shooting. There's a blast, you know, not unlike what you see in some of Catlin's, his cult firearm paintings. <laughs> so he's actively shooting. And I, you know, never wanted to convey the Tavernier, you know, with the roundhouse painting, I do think because he spent two years working on it and working amongst the Ilan Pomo, he spent two years with them, that he he must have come to a certain sensitivity about their lives, their history. And I'm sure he recognized that there was a toxic mercury mine on their lands. So, you know, I don't think it's the exception, that painting, but I do think Tavernier falls in the trap more than once of pandering to the idea of the Indian problem, as Arthur (laughs) writes, you know, trying to justify the ways in which whites could portray Native Americans as warlike. You know, Tyranny, he did on occasion fall into that trap. And, you know, I think there were times where he had, you know, he had a difficult time making money. I mean, he never had any money. And I do think he he occasionally does scenes that would have been probably very popular for his California patrons who were buying his art. Yeah, there's a genocide underway as he's making these pictures. So the one thing that we're kind of, well, I'm not directly leading us to enough, is that this is an extremely toxic mining site. This site goes back to the 1850s as a mining site when Frederick Billings, who was involved in preservation of Yosemite and later a lead investor in and president of the Northern Pacific Railroad and America's first philanthropist of conservation, Billings buys up land at this site where Tavernier was as a borax mine. And then it is when Billings sells out of the borax mine in 1873, the parrots buy it from Billings and begin mining what was known in the vernacular of the day as either quicksilver or cinnabar, which is, of course, mercury, which, like borax, was used to separate gold from rock. All of this is a long geological history lesson to say that this place was toxic as heck. Did Tavernier represent any of that? Would he have been aware of how toxic it was? Do we see that in the picture or or the work for the picture? Well, I do think there was... An awareness. The journal that I mentioned that was uh, written by Turin, who visited the mines with Parrot as his guide and with his traveling companion Edmund Rothschild, he goes into great detail about entering into the ground, writes extensively about the Chinese workers. They were almost exclusively Chinese working the mines and the dangers to to the Chinese workers, the extraordinary heat and the poison that they were exposed to. And it struck me halfway through my research on this project that, so Turin, Parrot, and Rothschild have the experience of going underground where they're extracting minerals from the earth. 
And then a day later, or even that evening, I think, because they went at nine o'clock to see the dance ceremony, they go into a purpose-built, beautiful, you know, round basket-shaped underground roundhouse. So they're in an underground roundhouse. You know, they didn't understand, obviously, the significance of the ceremony, but it just seems very ironic to me that the painting is of the underground roundhouse, but it was it resulted from another underground project that was very, very destructive. You know, and all take you know they so they, their two experiences were about going underground for two different purposes, and I just find that kind of fascinating. I mean, we do know that artists painted mines. You know, they did landscape paintings of mines. And I heard a wonderful lecture by Rachel DeLue recently on this very subject. So back to your question, Herod could have commissioned, you know, Cabernet to paint a flattering depiction of his mine. I don't know. Clear Lake's pretty, but it ain't beautiful. So no, it, no, I think <laughs> you're right. We in our, you know, in Shannon, Shannon writes about a Thomas Hill painting and an Albert Bierstadt painting of Clear Lake. And they're they're nice, but do we know if any of the decorations we see Pomo people wearing in Cavernier's painting are made from cinnabar, made from the toxic material from no. the site itself? They, they used only natural materials. And when you see, uh, Robert writes about this in our bulletin, that they only use shells and natural m- minerals and beads so we've been making all kinds of sly, slightly too insidery jokes about Tavernier's bohemianism and drunkenness. And he he does he does rather wash out of California and heads to Hawaii, which at that point was within America's imperial umbrella. Indeed, my my great great grandfather was involved in that as he was the oh, wow. host of the King of Hawaii when he visited California in the mid to late 1870s. We might think of Hawaii to the Pacific West as as Cuba was to the American South before the Civil War, for example. So how is it that Tavernier ends up in Hawaii and is he still making work when he gets there? Well, there was a certain connection between San Francisco and Hawaii and a number of the artists that he was friendly with in San Francisco and the art associations would spend some time in Hawaii. And he was you know, had a lot of bills that were very pressing and by (laughs) would not have been the first San Franciscan to jump on a boat to avoid a bill. Exactly. And so he, you know, he, he was drawn there really to escape his creditors. And when he arrived, the first thing he he wrote was that, that Hawaii was an artist's paradise. And I should mention that when he first arrived in San Francisco, he had grand ambitions. He was planning to go to Japan, actually, and then to return to Europe. And because San Francisco welcomed him to such a degree and he was able to establish a career there, he he stayed put. But I think he had uh, grand ambitions for other forms of landscape art. And so Going to Hawaii, you know, of course, he's immediately drawn to the volcanoes, particularly Kilauea. And within a short period of time, he's credited with forming the Volcano School. And he had a number of students. He arrives in December of 1884 and, you know, begins 
painting really beautiful depictions of the various volcanoes. And here again, we, we brought in a consultant, a Hawaiian historian, who was able, you know, to kind of put in context the importance of the Native Hawaiians' belief systems in Pele and the importance of volcanoes for them. But, you know, Tavernier loved the sublime aspects of the volcano, as many artists before him, you know, had done. And so he painted many, you know, many fine landscapes. The concept of the volcano school emerged during his time there. And he even painted one grand panorama, a 90-foot panorama of Kilauea that was successfully toured. And he was working on a second, even larger one, when he died suddenly in August of 1889 of a heart attack due to his heavy drinking. So, you know, it was a brief career, but he manages to do these amazing things in short periods of time. Like while in San Francisco, he founded the Barbizon-inspired Monterey Peninsula Artist Colony and, you know, was working in very much a tonalist Barbizon style while he was there and attracted a lot of other artists. So in each location that he goes, he, he has a presence and he shapes the artistic community wherever you find him. That's why I do find it extraordinary that he was so little known when I acquired the painting in 2016. I was like, you know, he's such an interesting artist. A couple quick things on Hawaii before we wrap up. Would Tavernier have known or cared about the European tradition of volcano painting, particularly around Etna? Oh, I'm sure he would have been aware. Having spent at least a decade in Paris, going to all the Paris Salon exhibitions, I'm sure he was aware of that. To my knowledge, he never traveled in Italy, but, and it, you know, even in New York, yeah. he could have gone to the Watsworth Athenaeum <laughs> to see Thomas Coles, not Etna. And then finally, what happened to that panorama painting? We don't know. That's the, always the story with panoramas. I've, I've worked on a lot of artists who did panoramas. Ralph Earl did the first Niagara Falls that disappeared. They don't survive. It's, it's very rare that they survive. There are what, um, two left in the United States? One in Minnesota there, there and one in St. Louis? Yeah, St. Louis has a great moving panorama. That it moves. At the river, it's wonderful. Yeah, there are several, but they, for the most part, and particularly since after his death, the Bohemian Club rightly sent a very large granite stone to mark his grave, but he was forgotten pretty quickly after after his death. The best way to be forgotten quickly in 19th century America was to die in the Pacific West. Not, not the first. Yeah. Betsy Kornhauser, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens, and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. 
Resist COVID Take Six allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take Six will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Point of Departure, 1958 to Present at Sheldon Museum of Art, draws its title from a 1958 jazz recording by Andrew Hill that both exemplifies and defies its time. The exhibition surveys the evolution of abstraction from the late 1950s, after the first wave of artists associated with abstract expressionism, to the present. The artists featured in Point of Departure embrace the primacy of their materials, using visual language rooted in observation. Works by Tony Bashara, Ross Blechner, Lisa Corinne Davis, Ron Gorchov, Carmen Herrera, Norman Lewis, Jill Nathanson, Odili Donald Odita, Larry Poons, Mavis Pusey, Stanley Whitney, Sue Williams, William T. Williams, Terry Winters, and others show fluid interplay between abstraction and depictive references. Point of Departure is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from August 13th through December 31st, 2021. For more information, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Welcome back. Next up, Aaron M. Hyman joins me to discuss his new book, Rubens in Repeat, The Logic of the Copy in Colonial Latin America. It examines the impact Peter Paul Rubens's prints had on art in Spanish colonies in the Americas and how artists in the New World came to deviate from Rubens's constructions to build a new art history. Hyman teaches at Johns Hopkins University. Rubens and Repeat is published by the Getty Research Institute and Getty Publications and will be available next month. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about 70 bucks. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. Special shout out to designer Kurt Hauser, who made an extraordinarily beautiful book. Aaron Hyman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. When did you start noticing and thinking about the ways in which Peter Paul Rubens, who, of course, never traveled west of Madrid and who died in 1640, started showing up in the New World and in the late 17th century? (laughs) Wow. Okay, so this is actually a really long and complicated story. It's actually not that long and complicated, but it was a fortuitous turn in my own life and scholarship. I thought it Um, might It indeed is. So I went to graduate school thinking that I was going to study just Northern European art, which I still consider myself a scholar of Northern European art, but I was there to work on things like Dutch still life painting, particularly flower flower painting was really important and and of interest to me. So I started graduate school at Yale and I got there thinking that I was full steam ahead on Northern Renaissance and Baroque art, as one might traditionally call it. And I took a class on Aztec art with Barbara Mundy, who is a professor at Tulane University. She was visiting for a semester. And I took this to fulfill a non-Western requirement. And it was going to serve nothing more than this. And in the fourth week of class, something like the fourth or fifth week of class, she said to all of us, she came into the room and she said, so we're going to Mexico, (laughs) which was not, we did not sign up for a travel seminar, but one of the beauties of being at a well-funded institution like Yale was that there was a pot of money and we all went to Mexico on a long, it was a long weekend, I think the start of spring break. And in the course of these four or five days between going to important sites to look at pre-contact Aztec art, I sort of wandered into the cathedral of Mexico City or went to see a few churches and 
had this weird, uncanny experience of seeing these works of art that looked a whole lot like very familiar Northern European compositions and indeed were based on printed sources. And that was my encounter with what ultimately became the topic of this book. Let's get into the nuts and bolts of, of kind of how that happened in the 17th century. So the stories you tell in this book start with engravings and perhaps other kinds of prints too, made after Rubens's work, prints made in Europe. How and why do these prints travel from European cities to New World cities, such as, of course, Cusco and Mexico City? Antwerp is one of the most important printing centers in all of Europe at this point, but it's the primary printing center for the Spanish Empire. So the very famous Plantin Moretus printing house, which is based in Antwerp, actually holds for a large portion of the colonial period a monopoly on printing liturgical text for Spain's empire. That means the Iberian Peninsula, that means New Spain, present-day Mexico, United States into Guatemala, and South America. So Antwerp is really a printing hub, and it's where Rubens' compositions are being produced as engravings, etchings, and also woodcuts. And from there, they're moving along trade routes to Seville, and then from Seville on to the American holdings that Spain has, and even onto places like Manila. We don't tend to think of that as a connected part of Spain's empire, but indeed Manila was part of New Spain in a juridical sense. So we have this massive traffic of printed material in the form of books and also loose-leaf prints that are traveling from places like Antwerp. Of course, it's not the only printing center, but it's a main printing center, onward to the Iberian Peninsula. And from there, dispersing all over the world. Well, let's use Cusco as an example. Could you give us an example or two of how prints arrive in the city, how Rubens' prints come to be the basis for pictures, actually, I guess, not just in Cusco churches, but beyond Cusco in the, in the surrounding regions too? Prints would travel in the Spanish Empire via different mechanisms. So there were official channels where you might have a bookseller who was also trafficking in printed material, and this would have various intermediary figures or players that would be carting material onto a boat in Seville, offloading it in what is present-day Colombia back onto a boat in the Pacific, offloading it in Lima, carting it all the way up to Cusco, which is a couple miles above sea level. But you also had less official or commercial routes of transit. So something like, let's say you have a Franciscan missionary who's been tasked with going to South America in order to help with the evangelical project of the Spanish Empire. That friar might tuck a few engravings into his personal effects and then land in Cusco with this object. Once there, patrons are in the practice of supplying artists with engraved or etched or woodcut models to which their works of art were supposed to conform. So this is the mechanism that we find in colonial documentation, that a, a painter or an artist is to conform to the print that they have been given. Conforme a la estampa que recibe is the Spanish phrase that often shows up in the documentation. And that meant that the print effectually functioned as a kind of contract between the patron and the artist. The patron was supplying a printed composition to an artist, and the artist was going to supply the patron with a work of art that had all of the formal features, that conformed to the composition that had been given. And this was how a lot of works of art came to exist across colonial Latin America, not just in Cusco, but really the majority of cities in the Spanish Americas. In Cusco, we have a really interesting phenomenon which challenges the presumption, which I think was a presumption and has been a presumption in the field, that 
all the works of art that we now find that we can chart to a European composition must have been transmitted by print. So that is to say, if we walk into a church and we see a Rubens descent from the cross and we can attach it to its printed source, that the artist who made it was probably working from a European print, that they laid it out on the table before them and they transferred it by any manner of transfer mechanisms to a canvas and then painted it. What the documentation in Cusco reveals is that actually already completed works of art in the city came to function in the same way. That a patron would go to a painter and say, you know, I would like a Descent from the Cross, just like the one that's in the Church of La Merced. And in this way, when you have multiple steps in a chain of reproduction that goes printed composition, painting, painting to another painting, painting to another painting, painting to another painting, you suddenly have Rubens effectually loosed from his own composition that comes to be seen instead as prototypically local and a product of Cusco itself as a city. And patrons from around the highlands come to depend on Cusco as a repository of certain kinds of compositions that they can really depend upon to be produced. Are artists in the New World copying Rubens exactly, at least in first contact, if you will? Or are they adapting him to their specific geography to local people and to local flora? What I sense behind your question is something that has lurked in the scholarship. I know you are no stranger to the scholarship of colonial Latin American art. And what I sense behind this question is, do we see iconographic elements transposed into Rubens's composition to effectively update them to the new world locale in which they would find themselves, right? So maybe we have a parrot in the background of a composition shown in the forest, or maybe just the landscape itself in general has not a Flemish feel, but suddenly a South American feel. That's typically been the way that scholars have addressed this, to try to show a form of agency on the part of artists and to show artists responding to the demands of a new place of producing an artwork for a space in which it had quote unquote not been intended. And that's a perfectly valid approach. But I think that what was interesting to me is that there are other ways in which something gets localized. And kind of as I talked about with the case of Cusco, the act of extreme repetition, one after the other, in actually quite conforming copying, that is to say not departing in those ways from the original, is what in the cases I'm looking at, actually roots it into the colonial fabric of Cusco and turns a product that we might see as being prototypically Rubensian into, in period terms, prototypically Cuscanian. <laughs> and it didn't need, in fact, the transposition of something like a parrot or any other kind of colonial iconography. We can think there's a famous painting in Cusco's cathedral that local tour guides like to say is a picture of the Last Supper. And they like to say, oh, look, the Paschal lamb has been substituted for a guinea pig. And we can take that at face value or just say it's not a very well-painted Paschal lamb. But the idea is that we want to see some prototypically American object within the space of the painting to think of that painting as American. And what I'm suggesting in this book is that actually an extreme sense of replication or reproduction can have the same effect of turning something foreign into something local. One of, I think it's safe to say, your favorite examples across maybe a third of the book, maybe even more, is Rubens's Austro-Seraphic Heavens. Why is that such an important Rubens and, of course, engraving after Rubens? 
Yeah, so Rubens's composition of the Austro-Seraphic Heavens, an engraving by Paulus Pontius after this composition that circulates widely in the Americas, is important to me for a couple of reasons. The first is that it's an engraving with a troubled history in the European scholarship on it. No one has really known exactly the purposes for which it had been created. And I should say, this is rather remarkable because what the print shows is a kneeling St. Francis with three orbs on his shoulders. On top of the orbs stands the Virgin of the Immaculate Conception. On the right-hand side of the composition, we see a group of Franciscans. And on the left, we see the Habsburg rulers, both past and present, deceased and presently living at the time of this object's creation in 1631. Now, there are many engravings that we sort of can't account for their production in the scholarship. It's rarer to have something created by an artist as famous as Rubens, for which he made an oil sketch specifically to produce this, that features the most important order and the crown for which there can be no real proper accounting of. And all manner of suggestions have been raised, that it was designed to decorate Franciscan convents, that it was designed as a book illustration, that it was designed as a kind of broadsheet, propagandistic broadsheet for the Franciscans. Alternatively, there's a suggestion in the 18th century by a print dealer, Francois Basson, that it was a thesis print. And so that's been either sort of accepted or rejected in the scholarship without any critical engagement. And the reason that there's no critical engagement is there's no reception history of this object in Europe. There are no copies after it. There are very few surviving impressions. They don't bear any material traces of use or manipulation. And so people have either said, yes, it is a thesis print, or no, it's not a thesis print, and moved on. So the question is, what even is a thesis print? So a thesis print, or a, a thesis broadside, is a picture, often an allegory, below which is appended a set of postulations on the occasion of someone's thesis disputation. This happened at the end of a completed course of doctoral study, where you would come and defend your, effectively, your dissertation, right? It's like a, a present-day thesis disputation, or defense, we might call it. And the student was to work through these written postulations, saying yes or no, defending these postulates, mobilizing pictorial elements of the composition above. And these were these were compositions that were keyed to particular fields of study. So theology was one field of study. Sometimes they were specifically designed for an individual student and the sponsor of the event. These were often sponsored by noblemen in Europe. But sometimes they were more generic. So you could have a sort of a theological thesis print that then could have many different texts appended below to suit the needs of various students as they went about defending their theses in theology. So I saw this huge reception in Latin America in comparison to what was absolute scant evidence in Europe. And I sort of thought to myself, like, is there anything that the materials in the Americas can tell us about the object itself? Because one of the claims of the book is that every copy tells us something about an original. We have all of these compositions in New Spain that respond to this printed original in different ways. So they might isolate the figure of St. Francis and his three orbs and make the three orbs the three branches of the Franciscan order, or they might turn them into three continents. And I started to think about this broad corpus of New Spanish material, each object as presenting some sort of response to the print in the same manner that you would in a thesis disputation. The student defending the thesis disputation might jump in, and then his supervisor might complicate 
the response that he had given, or an audience member might join in with a rejoinder of their own. And this would amplify the meaning of the original, unfolding its logic over a series of interrelated postulates or solutions. And I started to think about each of these compositions as representing one of those kinds of contributions to a thesis disputation. Now, that was really evocative and kind of metaphorically stimulating to me, but it did present a problem, which was to say, I, as an art historian, could compile all these objects on the table before me, but did anyone in the period hold them so clearly in their minds that they thought about them as a group in the same way? And this was sort of solved for me in finding three interrelated series in South America, one in Cusco, then another series in La Paz, and a final series in Cochabamba. And the Cusco picture starts with the Rubens original and really exaggeratedly modifies it, where you almost can't tell it was really just a Rubens at all. And then you get a copy of that picture as part of a series in La Paz, where they continue to mobilize different elements of Rubens's print to create other paintings next to it. And finally, we get a yet further amplification in Cochabamba. But at the end of all of this, they have an exact or conforming copy of the Rubens original, showing that while this series of three different painting cycles spanned 80 years and 1,500 kilometers, no one had lost sight of the original, nor did they struggle to connect these different spaces that we might think of as impossibly far away from one another along really treacherous Andean roads. So I felt like this, these South American examples really proved that we could use Latin American material to tell a more robust history of a European object. And that was really exciting for me and a really big stake of this chapter. Maybe looking northward a bit, what is the so-called Virgin of El Pueblito and its legend in Mexico City and beyond? And how do new Spanish artists build upon it? The Virgin of El Pueblito is a really interesting example. She has correlate, which I'll touch on also. So it's chapter six of the book deals with the Virgin of El Pueblito and the Virgin of Tepepan. Both are miracle working virgins who get placed on a statue base. And the statue base is, in fact, the main figure from Rubens's Austria's Seraphic Heavens, the kneeling Francis with these three orbs on his shoulders. So in one chapter, I talk about a lot of painted responses to this print. In this chapter, we have the case that we get three-dimensional sculpted statue bases made from this engraved source. And on top of this statue base, you can put these miracle-working virgins. That's already interesting in and of itself. But what's amazing is that in both cases, we get new Spanish engravings and woodcut, actually, of these miracle-working virgins. And when they go to reproduce the miracle-working virgin, so their devotion to her can be spread throughout New Spain, and so that a broader group of devotees can benefit from her miraculous potential, Rubens's figure of the seraphic atlas, or of St. Francis, is included along with the virgin. And she's labeled in both cases as a true portrait, a, tr a true image. This was a label that effectively allowed the copy to function like the original. In both of these cases, they include Rubens's Austro-Seraphic Francis, effectively folding him into the miracle-working potential of that original miraculous virgin. In this way, Rubens's figure is effectively made miraculous and is transmitted through the vice royalty in now engraved form. So we have a process by which an engraving 
is produced in Antwerp. It makes its way across the Atlantic. That engraving becomes the source to produce a statue base that's put under a miracle working virgin. And then that statue base is returned to print via new Spanish artists so that it can circulate yet more broadly within the vice royalty. And then those prints become sources in their own right for copying in other media like painting and sculpture. And eventually the three orbs become one. And eventually the three orbs become one. So one of the interesting things is that, of course, Rubens designs this figure of of kneeling St. Francis with three orbs on his shoulders for the weightless space of allegory and pictorial illusionism, two dimensions becoming three. But the problem when you turn it into a statue base is that he has to actually bear something above him. This is this uh, corresponds <laughs> to the laws of physics suddenly. And in the case of El Pueblito, yeah, it's, it's great. In the case of El Pueblito, she is a very light, it's called pasta de caña. It's a cornstalk paste that's made around a core of bundled reeds. So she's very light and she can effectively sit on these three orbs that are on Francis' shoulders without too much of a problem. In the case of Tepepan, she's alabaster. She's very, very heavy. And at some point, it seems they realize that the three orbs are just not going to be possible. His arms are outstretched as if he's going to bear the same weight of three orbs like, like in the Rubens engraving. But they then seem to have shifted course and put a single orb rather than rather than the three, and she balances nicely atop him. This effectively distinguishes the two cult objects from one another. So you have Rumens' St. Francis serving as the statue base for both virgins, but the real distinguishing element between these two chains of transmission is the three orbs for one and the single orb for the other. So we've been talking about art and images and ideas and their transmission. We have not talked a lot about artists. And indeed, to, to, to be sure, some of the things and works, objects and, and two-dimensional works we've been talking about, um, we don't know who was behind them, who made them. Artists are not only coming over from Spain into the New World. There are people in the New World who, who are becoming artists. And so I don't want to go into that whole history, but I am curious about something you mentioned in the book where you note that by the early 16th century, so by the early 1500s, Franciscans are teaching art making to indigenous populations. Why are they doing that? And do we have a sense of how important that is to the story you're telling here? This is something that I don't actually treat too much in the book. It's been the subject of study by other scholars. But as part of the earliest missionary activity, you have friars arriving from Europe, most famously the friar Pedro de Gante, who himself is from, in his name, Peter of Ghent. So he's from the southern Netherlands. So he charts the, a similar trajectory to the prince that crossed the Atlantic. He sets up a school for the training of indigenous neophytes at the chapel of San Jose de los Naturales in the center of Mexico City. And we don't know a tremendous amount about the ways that artists were trained, but we know that they're trained in the mechanical arts, that is to say, to produce paintings and sculpture, and in the case of New Spain, also featherwork objects. So objects made for Christian devotion with Christian iconography, but made out of a kind of mosaic-like technique of gluing feathers onto a two-dimensional surface. These are some of the most splendid and most well-studied New Spanish objects. As part of that process and practice, it seems that friars from the jump are supplying European engravings and also woodcuts, specifically in the 16th century, woodcut is still a very important medium of artistic transmission. They're supplying these as models to artists who are then making works of art from the, using these compositions in other media and materials. That sets in motion a process by which the European 
reproductive image, the European engraving or etching or woodcut sits at the heart of practices in the Americas, in the Spanish Americas. So while I don't touch on that, we sort of pick up the story in Medias Res in the middle of the 17th century when that's just a defining feature of artistic production. So it comes across with these early Franciscan efforts, but it becomes a defining feature of the way that art is produced and is really one of the most important factors that shaped the artistic landscapes of the Americas was the transmission of European printed materials. Probably the most famous artist working in Mexico City in the period your book covers is Cristobal de Villalpando. And he's probably a particularly good example of an artist who bases major work on Rubens, but feels free to have some authorship of his own. How so? Are there a couple of of good examples that would um, underscore what he brought to what Rubens started? Yeah, Villalpando, who suddenly has maybe finally, one could say, achieved a kind of critical recognition in the United States, does play a really central role. He's on the cover of the book, kind of split screen of an assumption of the Virgin, his painting and Rubens's engraving. Stylistically, there's a lot of depth that one can see that he he owes to Rubens. There's a kind of freeness of brushwork and a kind of level of quality. He's just truly amazing. And he's been pulled out of the broader corpus of new Spanish art because of this exceptional technical ability. And that's really important to me. I think it's important that we look at questions of quality. And in the book, I definitely interested in combining kind of the highest levels, highest echelons of artistic achievement with broader visual culture, we might call it, and suggesting that all of these have interesting histories. But Villalpando definitely stands out among the artists of this period. But I, I really wanted to situate him within several generations of artists in Mexico City who started to create more and more complex citational practices around European printed materials. And I do this in the space of Mexico City's cathedral, where one can really see the different generations of artists working subsequently within the same space. So the front of Mexico City's cathedral, right above the main door, is a stone relief carving that is based directly, conforms to an Assumption of the Virgin by Rubens. And this sets off a kind of cascade of citational practices where the next artist in the cathedral who is responding to Villalpando in a sense and Villalpando's manipulation of Rubens, he looks at this facade sculpture and it's clear that he thinks to himself, okay, a Rubens has been mobilized here. I'm gonna do an Assumption of the Virgin in a totally different way, but I wanna signal to everyone that I knew that I was working in the in the shadow of not just the facade assumption, but also of Rubens. And so he very cleverly cites a single figure from another Rubens assumption, a second engraving of the assumption, and sticks it right in the foreground of his composition, right on top of his signature, effectively claiming authorship through citation. The next artist to make an assumption similarly pulls on what Correa has done and on the facade of the cathedral, showing that he not only understands the engraving behind the facade, but also understands the engraving behind the citation in Correa's composition. So I wanted to show how these games of citation, what I call double response, that is to say responding to both your local precedent and to the European source that animated it, how these games of double response compounded over generations. And Villalpando was a was part of one of those generations, but it continues. The citational play continues into the 18th century and becomes more and more complicated. But a critical facet for me 
was to show that at the same time that these artists are making incredibly complicated pictorial statements that show that they're able to mobilize a whole corpus with the, really the canon of European printed material. At the same time that they're doing these incredibly technical citational plays, they also are making quote unquote just copies or mere copies. That is to say they're conforming almost entirely to printed models. So while Villalpando makes these incredibly sumptuous, very complicated paintings from Mexico City's sacristy that splice together four different European sources in one composition, he also will conform almost exactingly to an engraving of the Triumph of the Church by Rubens. And that these practices of copy and invention and citation were not in any way seen in, to be in opposition to one another, which might be the presumption we would bring to the corpus from a European or Europeanist framework. So Villalpano is really, really essential in showing that those categories are in no way irreconcilable in Latin America. There are so many histories here and, and indeed ways of doing history that are interesting for anybody to read, but, but can especially inform how other parts of the field work going forward. Aaron Hyman, thanks very much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.